is fake news as big a problem in every country in the world as it appears to be in, say, Britain, Europe, and the United States? Well, basically, I think problem, yes, but it was already way before Trump. Uh, but it's a completely different focus. For instance, here, and we start today with, with <coughs> Donald Trump, but fake news is way before Donald Trump. Uh, but we didn't talk about it, we didn't call it like that. And um, uh, uh, Donald Trump is not in the timeline of people in Latin America, for instance. So they don't talk about fake news like we do. They are not as worried or, uh, yes, I think they're worried, but they're not involved in the way we are. Right. Uh, yeah. And that is interesting about this network because I'm covering from, from Burma to Nicaragua, from, from Argentina to South Africa to Indonesia. Uh, Bangladesh, all these countries, different countries, um, with all their uh, cultural perspectives. Louis, uh, what do you do, and how do you come across fake news? Yeah, so hi everyone, I'm, uh, I'm Louis Reynolds, I'm a policy and research coordinator at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which is an international counter-extremism organisation, uh, and we seek to uh, undermine the capacities of extremist groups and persuade people who are in extremist groups to, to leave them. Um, I've been uh, analysing, particularly in the online space, uh, extremist groups for a long time and trying to come up with solutions to their recruiting uh, tactics and their propaganda tactics. And um, fake news is, uh, has always been really important in, in the world of extremism um, in terms of conspiracy theory, misinformation, uh, black and white narratives and all the other things that really underpin extremist groups. The most remarkable thing I think over the last year has been um, the increased mainstreaming of fake news. Uh, that's gone hand in hand, and I something I really look forward to talking about. It's gone hand in hand with increased political polarisation, increased you know emergence of echo chambers in the online space, people being more willing to believe things that are negative about people who disagree with them in general, and that's quite a worrying trend for us as an organisation. Okay, um, okay. Let's start at the beginning. Um, this phrase, fake news. Um, uh, it, it's more than just news. It's clearly about all types of information, all types of factual information. But what do we mean by fake news? What is it? Who wants to start? Well, I think we're essentially talking about information that's inaccurate, um, but whether that's inaccurate deliberately to be misleading or inaccurate because it's a result of sloppy journalism. I mean, there are, there are two different ways of looking at it. It's, it's, some of it's about selling papers or getting ratings or changing people's minds, and some of it's just about not doing your job properly, but that's just as dangerous, I'd say. Anybody else? Louis? Yeah, Jan, then Louis. Okay. Um, well, for me, uh, fake news is not disconnected from uh, fact-checking, safety and security, and probably that has everything to do with the countries that I'm working in, where journalists are not free, not safe, where information is controlled. Um, and so fake news is really, for me, very much connected there, much more than maybe in, in Western Europe. Yeah, I mean, very simply, I'd say that, that fake news is, is news articles designed deliberately to mislead. Um, sometimes that's to influence people. Sometimes that's for profit. I mean, a lot of kind of non-political, sensational fake news is just driven by um, click revenue. Um, but it's, it's important to have a narrow definition of uh, fake news because if we have a very wide definition, it allows people to use it to castigate mainstream press or to you know, apply the label fake news just to opinions they don't disagree with, which reinforces the problem. But it's related to a lot of other concepts that are, that are equally worrying, like you know, the rise of conspiracy theories, which might not be categorized as fake news but are particularly worrying. Um, and also you know, the isolation of people's media consumption habits towards more towards 
views that conform with their own and, and less towards views that might disagree with them. And that's a general trend that goes beyond fake news that we're seeing online. Um, but does it have to be stuff that is deliberately seeking to mislead? Can it just be stuff that accidentally misleads? I think, I think, I think Anna put it very well. Some of it's just sloppy journalism. I mean, um, we live in a hyper-competitive you know, journalist, journalism landscape now where you know, our success or failure is measured in real time um, by web analytics, and it is extremely tempting for news organisations, including news, organ news organisations that used to have a very good reputation, to publish stuff that they either know is false or can't be bothered to check out before they publish it. So I don't think it's always you know, a deliberate act of this is something I'm going to do to deliberately to influence someone, something, although there's a lot of that. There's also just sloppiness. And the impact of that could be just as serious, yeah, actually, can't yeah. it? Because the stories, because of the nature of online news, these inaccurate stories can spread very quickly and be regurgitated endlessly around the world. So it can just be a genuine, a genuine mistake to start off with. I think sometimes a genuine mistake, yeah. yeah. People yeah. not checking their facts properly yeah. or, or, simply, or simply regurgitating somebody else's news without checking yeah. it themselves. Yeah. Yeah, it's also part of human beings because if he starts to tell a story in my ear and I tell it to you and tell it to you, you get a completely different story. And this is, I think, the most of the news that is published is, is packaged and repackaged news. It's yeah. going all the way, all the way, all the way. So somebody adds purpose or not uh, something to it. The fake news that we're talking about today is maybe very much focused on what happened in Macedonia with the young people there in this little city that had no perspective and started to make fake websites and started to earn, earn Google money. Uh, the first guy that earned $60,000 drove around in a Mercedes and all the young people, 30, 40 of them, started to produce fake news and, and, and attack Hillary Clinton. That was basically the coming out of, of fake news. But like I said, I, I'm sure that in my, in my early childhood that was something like fake news, but we didn't identify it like that and we're much faster in, in identifying things. And the whole world has got much faster because of the, the, the changes in technology and the way it works. And there is an awful lot more recycling uh, mm -hmm. of news. So if I type in a story, even a headline now, into, into Google or into another search engine, not only will I get the original story, but I may get seven or eight or 20 other sites which are now reproducing that story and almost lifting it wholesale. And that must, Anna, be a, be a big problem when you're trying to, when part, of the prop is, when part of the solution is supposed to be, does it come from more than one source? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we, we're sort of in a slightly luxurious position in being a, a print publication, and we're published every week, so we have seven days to spend fact-checking a story. So we'll, we, we'll never take anything from one source. We'll always go to multiple sources, and as often as possible, we get right back to the original source, which is why, as I said, it's often very surprising to see how a story can be misinterpreted or miscommunicated, and we do try, we, you know, we endeavour to get as close to the truth as we can. I think it's a lot harder when you're working in an online news room. Fake news and children, fake news and young people. Um, what do we know about the age groups that this affects? What do we know about how, how it affects different age groups differently? I mean, um We've done a lot of research in, in the area of kind of understanding young people's digital skills and their, the, how effectively they can consume and analyze information and think critically about media sources. Um, there's a little bit of research we've done, for example, around um, the emergence of conspiracy theories in the classroom. And teachers increasingly report in history classes and religious classes and so on 
um, that young people are, are, are um, articulating more and more conspiracy theory-based views. Um, and that's certainly related to um, the online space and how it curates that kind of information. Um, I think the critical thing is to remember is, is well, two things. Um, media literacy and critical thinking skills aren't just things that young people need. We see all the time adults absolutely failing to um, assess information critically. All, all humans have a tendency to um, be very, very critical of information they disagree with and hugely accepting of inf information that they do agree with. Uh, and the way that social media works, you know, communities of interest and shared belief rather than geographic communities, really facilitates the rapid spread of that information in an, in an uncritical way. But, uh, you know, we, we often make the mistake of thinking that young people, because they're digital natives, know all this stuff and have those skills. And, you know, research study after, after study just, just absolutely shows that they don't. They really lack the capacities frequently to, to critically analyse information and are very likely to do things like judging the veracity of a story based on the design and aesthetic quality of a web page, for example. Is there one age group that is more vulnerable to being exploited by, by fake news, or does it apply equally across children and young people's age groups? Anybody? Yeah, I think the research shows that it's, it's not any particular age group, really. Um, as has already been mentioned, a lot of adults fall um, foul of of uh, fake news as well. So I don't, I think it's also very early days in terms of um, academic research anyway into, so, you know, fake news as we understand it today, although it's been around for a very long time. It's a, obviously a different iteration today and what we mean by fake news really varies quite a lot from how, it, for example, Trump is defining it as something that he doesn't agree with versus, you know, deliberate or not deliberate um, uh, you know, uh, manipulating facts or indeed satire. So it, it means something quite different today. But I think, you know, there just hasn't been a sufficient amount of time. Academic, the academic world moves very slowly. So I'm sure there's a lot of other kinds of research going on that are responding more quickly. But um, yeah, it's, I don't think my sense is that so far there's not really that much difference. Uh, differentiation. The academic world slow? Surely not. No, no, <laughs> We surely like to not. take our time and mull things over. <laughs> <laughs> okay, look, uh, talking of the academic world, we, we thought it would be interesting for this session to, um, to get Cynthia um, to give us uh, some of the background and the history to fake news, because as Jan Willem was saying uh, earlier, this is, this is not new. Uh, it goes back quite a long way. So what do we know about the background and what do we know about the history? Uh, of fake news. Cynthia, do you want to uh, take us through this? Yes, yes. Um, take, take the mic. Yeah, do take the microphone. <coughs> over this way. Okay. Um, yeah, I, we've already um, mentioned that, you know, fake news is not a new thing per se. So there's nothing particularly new about it, um, nor the worries about its potentially harmful effects on children. That's not new either. Um, but what I want to do in the next few minutes is to provide just a very brief overview of some of the academic thinking around children's relationship to media, including the news, and with specific reference to the need to develop and enhance their critical media literacy. What I'm hoping is that this will provide a useful kind of background and context for understanding children's past and current relationship to fake news. Didn't. Um, 
So it's, I think it's fair to say that before we were worried about the impact of fake news on children, cultural commentators such as the very famous F.R. Leavis and Dennis Thompson in their seminal book Culture and Environment that was published in 1933 argued that the mass media were under, undermining the morals of young people by appealing to the lowest popular cultural tastes leading to general cultural design, uh, decline. So something of a panic at the time. Their view um, was that children were a particularly vulnerable audience, um, vulnerable to the cheapest emotional responses, they said, to films, newspapers, publicity, and commercial fiction, all of which provided them with immediate pleasures got from the least effort possible. So it's fair to note uh, that such conservative thinking, though, <laughs> has not changed very much over the last 85 years. This sort of point of view is still very much with us amongst some commentators. Levis and Thompson very reluctantly concluded that children ought to be taught media criticism to, quote, avoid a future of a world of depressed and cynical aimlessness. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> and uphold certain high aesthetic standards, tastes, and the ability to discriminate um, between what they believe to be the best and the worst media. So developing media literacy skills, they thought, would inoculate young people against the degrading effects of mass media. Now, I came across a recent example of this kind of thinking, more or less, and that was in a um, March 18th, 2017 Telegraph story, the headline being, Teach Children About Fake News to Stop Them Becoming Extremists, which I'm, I'm not necessarily saying we shouldn't be doing some of that kind of intervention, but that was the sort of um, framework that was being employed there. Such views now tend to be criticized as rather elitist because they uphold unequal cultural distinctions, emphasizing as they do that popular media, unlike serious media, um, tend toward distortion and falsifications of truth, of facts, and so on. This approach not only encapsulates academic thinking from a long time ago, but also for, from more current research on children and media, including um, that on uh, fake news. <coughs> and more specifically, such research tends to assume adults know what is in the children's best interests, and thus they should be quite rightly in control of children's engagement with and access to the media in order to protect them. It's always the discourse of protection and safety. This position squarely rests on the assumption about children and young people as, a particularly, as particularly vulnerable to harm. Critical media literacy, however, is different. So I'm making the distinction between media literacy and critical media literacy. Here the focus is on the potential of media in all of its contemporary forms to engage, to challenge, and activate children and young people as they develop as citizens. It's not assumed that children are uniquely vulnerable and susceptible to media manipulation, to trickery and fraud. Media, multiple media literacy skills to, de um, to develop include the ability to discriminate, evaluate, and investigate media influences and uses, 
without making arbitrary distinctions between high and low media, for example. And just to wrap up, as I said at the outset, um, fake news is not new, um, nor are adult worries about the potentially corrupting influence of media on children. Critical media literacy research refocuses our attention on engaging children and young people as they encounter a wider range of media and engage in the creation of their own. Adults and children can learn much from each other um, in developing skills to address misinformation, the spreading of accidental and deliberate falsehoods, and understanding whose truth and in whose interest fake news spreads. We, uh, we should stop seeing children from a kind of top-down perspective, um, point of view as the audience that we adults want to teach things to. Instead, I would want to argue that we need to better understand children's varying relationships to media as different types of audience, audiences, sometimes engaged, sometimes not, sometimes interactive, sometimes not, and as media creators and critics who have potentially important contributions to offer to current debates around fake news. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Um, maybe it shouldn't surprise me, but one of the things that certainly strikes me, how savvy they are, and how much they appear to have thought about this subject and have come across it already. Sh should I be surprised by that? Is that what your experience would be? Please. Um, I don't think you should be surprised by that. I mean, I think children are a lot less passive than a lot of people imagine they are when they consume information. And I think, um, you know, children have a lot of questions. They ask a lot of questions and they, they challenge things that they, that they don't believe. And that doesn't mean to say that they're not being taken in by a lot of stories. But, you know, for example, on The Week Junior, we have a very critical uh, bunch of readers. And if we print something that they're not sure about, so they don't agree with, or they think we might have got wrong, they'll, they'll tell us about that very quickly. Yeah. And we encourage them to do that. And we reward yeah. them for yeah. it. Yeah, my, th my thoughts watching that is, you know, how, how similar children and adults' responses to, to this could be. I mean, I think if you asked a selection of adults, you know, what should you do about fake news, they'd probably give you some very sensible answers. Whether that then translates to their habits in terms of sharing content, I'm not sure it always translates in, in, in it, because we, we do things on social media we wouldn't necessarily do if we were being critical and thinking it through. Okay, so should we be... Uh, 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 should we be more worried about children in relation to fake news than, say, adults and fake news, or is or is it just is is it all just the same? Yeah, Louis. Yeah, um, first, just just to support that point, I mean, um, I just I'd, I'd emphasise that um, you often talk to adults and and, and young people um, alike, and they'll have a really good theoretical understanding of an issue like fake news. And translating that into actual behaviours is a very different thing. And people will often say very savvy remarks about fake news, but they won't kind of apply it to, them, to themselves because, uh, you know, for example, like I said earlier, the tendency to agree with, to, to kind of pass over things you agree with anyway. Um, in terms of, uh, your question was, um, what should we do about it? Yeah, but I just wanted to know whether we should be worried. Yeah. What I wanted to know more, was really, more worried about young should people. we be more worried about young people and fake news than we should be worried about fake news in general? Yeah, because you, you as a panel seem to be saying to me, well, actually, they're very savvy, they know a lot, they've learned a lot, and it's I not a... Go, young Willem? <laughs> I didn't say that, no. Yeah, I mean, okay. I'd be... I'd be um, so I'd be a little bit more, more, more cynical, I guess. Um, I don't think that young people um, are infinitely more... Um, uh, uh, 
kind of uh, naive and, and manipulatable than, than an adult might be. But from my experience, coming at this from the position of a counter-extremism organization, I know how much conscious and active efforts um, both state actors and extremist groups put into grooming this particular range of people. So, you know, the, the, the sophistication and the um, time spent actively trying to mislead and manipulate young people between the ages of, let's say, 14 to 24, maybe, um, is, uh, makes them a risk category, not because of any characteristics they might have, but because of the value that they represent to extremist groups and to uh, other kind of negative actors. Okay, let's, let's, let's can, take this subject then about how should children... Go I, on, yeah, 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 Willem, yeah. I'd like to add, because um, I think we have to be aware of that the traditional media are no longer in the lead if it's about news and information for kids. So it is a bigger problem for them. Because what happens is they are in their social media environments that is where we are locked out. And they're not only consumers of news and information, they're producers of it. So we, we should never underestimate that element, and that is much stronger than what happens in the other world. So the difference is not their reaction to it, or they're, in, they're, they're making sense of it, but the, 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 the balance of their media usage and, uh, is different. Yes, and they're all, also producers, creators. Yeah, yeah. Much that, more than adults. That. Many adults yes. don't know how the video ver, uh, uh, button on their cell yeah. phone works. Yeah. For kids, that's the essence. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. there is a huge difference there. Okay, so what should children's media do about this? Well, how should children's media respond? What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask uh, uh, three of the panelists to, um, to take us through some of the responses they have made uh, in response to this question. Lewis, do you want to start? Yeah, um, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a huge question, you know, how should we respond? Um, I think, you know, for us as a, as a news service, we are, our, our aim is to tell us, tell the tell children what the issue is. And so um, I've got an example that I'd like to show, which is um, r really uh, trying to present to children what critical media literacy is without using the words critical media or literacy. <laughs> so let's, let's, take, let's take a look at that. Have you ever shared news online? Think before you click to stop the spread of fake news. So you've run that in, in the program and on yeah. your website and, exactly. and, and, and Facebook page and yeah. so on? Yeah, we made a special version that was, um, that was designed specifically for Facebook that would, that would, that would be vertical so it looked like your, like your social media feed as you were, as you were yeah. reading it. So you know, trying, trying as much as possible to, you know, to visualise this story for children. Anna, do you want to take us through what you've been doing? Yeah, so this uh, on the screen at the moment is a, a spread that we ran in the uh, magazine and we decided after a sort of series of stories about that involved fake news around the time of the US election and afterwards we decided we needed to tackle the topic head on so we created a, um, an information spread um, to explain to children much in the same way as Lewis's video did really what, what's fake news, what are the different kinds of fake news so this, as we said before the stuff that's a deliberate lie the stuff that's sloppy and the stuff that's maybe just being published for fun and, and you know, like the Daily Mash the kind of thing that people know is not, right, not real um, so 
So to, to help children sort of identify what it is, we then gave them some examples of some fake news stories. Or actually, that, that example does include a couple that are real as well. We had a quiz element on the page to get kids looking at the headlines and trying to figure out what was real and we'll what was We'll ask rubbish. the audience later which one do you think are real. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure if I can remember. Um, and obviously, we talked about the um, impact of fake news as well. Why does it matter? Why is it important that we, uh, we are able to identify fake news? Why is it a problem? And we then went on to give some tips. Um, to children again checking the URL seeing if it looks credible looking for other sources um, really being critical asking a question is you know is the story so ridiculous that it's unlikely to be true if the answer is yes then it's unlikely to be true um, and, to, and to talk about things I mean with again with our magazine fundamentally we want children to uh, form their own opinions about things and to ask questions and to explore <coughs> subjects and, and always to dig a little bit deeper anyway so it's all about all about questioning what you're told even if it comes from a, a voice of authority and, and how long ago did you run that uh, now, that must have been early, I think it was early this year. It was after the US election, so it's when, it right. was when everybody was beginning to talk about how yeah. fake news might, might have influenced the outcomes. Interesting. Okay. Jan Willem, do you want to uh, talk about uh, what you've been doing? <clears throat> yes, let's focus on what other news for kids. Um, like I said earlier, it's a network now of 20 countries producing their local uh, or national uh, news for kids. Depends on, could be children, could be youth. Uh, even uh, adolescents we have in South Africa. Um, what we have created is a, an online newsroom where uh, I, as being kind of a chief editor, um, uh, sometimes take the lead in addressing topics, uh, but also we are controlling, uh, in a way, what is happening, because as a partner you have to be subscribing the editorial guidelines and the code of conduct. Like I said earlier, code of conduct in many countries is also important because uh, one of the code of conduct is that, that the par partner that we work with is independent. And we are used that public TV in Europe is independent, even though it's getting harder and harder. But maybe in, in Latin America, public, public TV, even though they call it, it's, it doesn't exist because the one who runs it is always appointed by the new president. Um, so, so that is important to build a network with uh, different regions, is that you have to really put emphasis on trying to find the common ground. Um, we have an online library and they really exchange materials, so you can have a piece. You can also address the other partners to say, well, we are having elections in Burma, we would love to hear the voices of kids in, in Latin America, Africa and Europe, uh, what they think about Burma, what they know about Burma, and what they think about elections and about democracy. Um, uh, and coming back to, to, to fake news, um, yes, we talked about uh, fake news in, from the perspective of adults. It happens in Facebook and TV. But for kids, it happens in Instagram, in Snapchat, it happens in WhatsApp, or it depends on which region you are, Line, Viber, or uh, WeChat, China, for instance. Um, so there is the real problem. Uh, like I said, kids are creators. We also have in the What Other News for Kids uh, formula we say we are, it's news made by professionals, but open to news made by kids. Especially we, we want to have news from, from remote areas where we cannot send teams. And in many countries that I work with, like in Mexico, where they have 20 states, where there's Indian communities that we really want to represent in the, in the Mexican news for kids, um, we manage sometimes to get uh, uh, stories from the kids and teams uh, themselves. So um, uh, uh, by joining the forces, by sharing the good stories, we uh, promote diversity, but also we try to fight uh, uh, unreliable, 
uh, not independent and, and fake news. Mm -hmm. um, who's responsible, ultimately? In the country? No, it's, it, the country itself is, is responsible. Um, and uh, so, so we have to, uh, a big part of what I'm doing is traveling around all the time, uh, training, updating, uh, especially because teams change. Um, uh, it, takes, it takes at least five to ten years to understand a little bit what is working for kids. But Facebook, some countries just but, started, but, like face, but Facebook doesn't operate in the country. Facebook operates across the world. Oper Facebook operates yeah, every, Facebook everywhere there is, is a, a, a digital connection. Yeah. Yes, but uh, Facebook is not a real problem for kids uh, around the world. It's much more Instagram or, 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 like I said, it's Snapchat or WhatsApp. And who regulates region. them? And who regulates them? Um, they are not, because th this is one of the interesting things that, that is, uh, is here. We, we were talking in the past about the ownership of companies. And now we have companies that are kind of owned by the audience because they put their content in, but it's not. And I heard a very interesting quote of, uh, of a Norwegian um, uh, um, a journalist on a conference in, in South Africa. He said that uh, uh, Zuckerberg, um, he looks at his company as a tech company, but it's not. It's a news company. And if you're a news company, you have to uh, follow certain ethics, and they're not doing. So we have to charge them on that. Facebook are very clear. Facebook are not a publisher. Facebook are a platform. Yeah. Uh, they merely, if you take the newspaper analogy, they merely provide the trees to make the paper. Um, they don't, they, they, they aren't oh, responsible, no, they, have the they aren't responsible for any of the yeah, content. They are. They, they they're not an editor, they're not a publisher, no, nothing. They, they have the algorithm. And that is also interesting. Uh, um, uh, the newspaper in Norway, Aftenposten, they created their own algorithm. So the, the, home, the, 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 the main page, the home page is equal to everyone, and then the rest of the pages is uh, personalized, and they follow algorithms. Um, uh, and that is one of the things is that the algorithm is the new editor of today. Louis. Yeah, I mean, um, so I have to declare a bias. I, I work a lot with social media companies. Um, I don't want to be accused of fake newsing, so I thought I'd put that straight up. You work, with, you work with YouTube, which is uh, Google? Yeah, uh, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, and uh, Google owns YouTube, so that's, that's, that's the big three. Um, uh, I, before I was doing my current job, I was working in the Center for the Analysis of Social Media, and one of the things we did was design machine learning algorithms that were, just, were kind of aiming to identify extremist content, for example, and remove it from platforms, or identify um, different types of propaganda, and, and so on. Um, and it's really exceptionally difficult to um, effectively design algorithms that can get rid of you know, harmful content that can identify fake news and so on. There are things you can do, um, but it's, it's definitely not as easy as we sometimes uh, think it is. So when people like Facebook and Google say, you know, this is really difficult and a serious challenge, um, you know, they, they do mean it. I mean, uh, it, it, it is very difficult. There is also another element to this that I find really concerning sometimes, um, and you get this a lot in the UK in the debate around fake news. We, we, we seem we kind of tend to put the weight of responsibility on the social media companies. And I really understand that, um, and it's a natural tendency. But if we consider that a, a huge portion of our public debate, of our, of our conversation, of how we connect to each other it, nationally and internationally, take place on these three social media platforms, and we want social media companies to regulate private businesses, to regulate what can and can't take place on those platforms as opposed to governments providing those regulations, I think there's, uh, there's, there's serious questions of ethics around that. And I'm not sure particularly that I would be comfortable with a more heavy-handed, kind of more censorious um, social media company array, even if it was for, you know, with good intentions. I think it's quite a difficult and dangerous 
path to be going down. Okay, here's a question for all the panellists. Can I just see a show of hands? Um, Germany, uh, Justice Minister in Germany, has said that they are going to fine uh, internet companies 50 million euros, 50, five, zero million euros, if they don't immediately take down either illegal or misleading content. How many of you would like to see such a system adopted in Britain? Just put your hand up if you would like to see it. 50 million euros. Nobody. So why are the Germans much, so much more worried about this than, than we are? Jan Willem? No, I don't think they're more worried. It's, it's more the German context. This is how Germany deals with that. I'm always very uh, um, uh, call it, reluctant yeah. uh, when it's about governments and forbidding things because I'm working in countries where you don't want the government to do anything. Um, uh, but uh, clearly the signal that Germany is putting there, and I think that's, that at least is a good uh, step in the direction, is that governments have to be more aware of the countries that they're providing, and the countries don't stop at the borders anymore. Uh, and there the politics are way behind, and this is a kind of a catch-up way, or maybe even a show-off way of Germany. But at least it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thought in a direction that responsibility and shared responsibility is getting more and more important. Cynthia, if, the inter if there was a 50 million euro pound fine in this country, you wouldn't have to be worrying about false news much longer, would you? Um, yeah, uh, but I would be very worried about um, just the heavy-handedness of, of that kind of move. I think there, that's not necessarily the best way to, to deal with those sorts of issues. I think it's working as collaboratively as possible with social media um, providers and with, with young people and with parents and interested parties to, to collectively work on these issues rather than just using a sledgehammer. I mean, I completely agree with Cynthia, and I'd also say it's a, it's a misattribution to suggest that a heavy fine would stop fake news in its tracks. I mean, it's, it's genuinely not a lack of willpower on the... On, well, you on, would on, say that, wouldn't you? I mean, I, well, I, with the I, I, I flagged that up, and we, you know, as an independent organisation, we work ourselves to support governments around the world in, you know, ways to identify and flag and remove content. Though, again, and, 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 and similar to the point you made, actually, that... You know, when you work in some companies, you want to be really careful about the um, leeway you give them and the cover you give them for removing content online, because some governments are less kind of scrupulous than others and might use it to repress free free yeah. expression and so on. Do you want to say a bit uh, while we've got you? Do you want to say a bit about what the work you're doing and introduce the piece of uh, tape you've got with you? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so you know, we're we're working on this um, on this problem from a technical perspective, from a policy perspective, and also from an education perspective. And and you know. Having done a lot of work in the online space, I'm, I'm aware of how difficult it is to stop, stop bad things happening on the internet. Um, and I'm convinced personally that, that one of the best, there's a lot we need to do, but one of the best approaches we can have is education and teaching digital citizenship and critical thinking and media literacy. Um, and so I work on a number of projects testing new methods around the world. And, and one of the cool projects I'm doing at the moment is with uh, Google and YouTube. Um, we're working with them and UK youth to uh, design new ways of, of teaching uh, digital citizenship skills in youth uh, clubs where you can reach some you know, young people who, who you can't reach normally through schools perhaps um, and you can teach them these skills so they can make their own critical judgments. And um, across the UK we're doing workshops, we're kind of expanding into training youth workers to deliver the workshops themselves, trying to, trying to achieve some serious uh, scale. Uh, and then uh, you know, beyond this project, um, 
We, um, uh, which, by the way, I think the only educational intervention I've ever seen with a, with a drum and bass trailer, so I'm quite proud of that. <laughs> but um, beyond that as well, testing new methods to deliver it in schools as well. Um, and really, you know, there's two elements to, to this workshop um, and this kind of concept that, that differs from the normal digital citizenship approach. The first one is uh, we're obviously trying to make it fun. Um, but the second and most important one is we're trying to um, give young people a sense of responsibility over their own social networks, and that's really important. Skills is one thing, but uh, giving young people kind of a feeling of responsibility, you know, they want to look after their friends, they want to share things in case it manipulates someone else. Giving that, that sense of ownership of the online space is very important. This is an older age group? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is kind of, there's a bit of a range, but it's basically our... Um, 15 to, to 20, early 20s, mm -hmm. uh, and it varies from place to place. I mean, you know, this is one part of a wide array of skills I think we need to start to kind of to, 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 um, develop, and I think it's really important to be teaching digital citizenship from a very early age, actually, and, and to, you know, build, like with any other subject, build on the level of sophistication as you and, can get older. And, and how big a part in uh, what you're doing is tackling online extremism? Yeah, I mean, you know, recruiting so, for you know for, for, for groups and for Middle Eastern groups and so on. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you, you 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 wouldn't say it. Looking at it, um, one of the key drivers of this project. Yeah, I work in a counter extremism organisation. I mean, our, our main concern is stopping people being recruited. Now, the, if you teach people good digital skills, they, they'll fall less with fake news. You know, you can reduce vulnerability to things like gang grooming and sexual exploitation, and you can make them more confident citizens and more powerful consumers and so on. There's a lot of secondary benefits, but for me, what I, re what I really care about is um, stopping people getting recruited by organizations like uh, Daesh and, um, and even non-violent extremist groups or less violent extremist groups from, you know, Britain first through to um, Al Majaroon and, and all these kinds of organizations. And, you know, we have a lot of hands-on experience with people who get drawn, especially young people who get drawn into extremist groups. And at the heart of every extremist narrative is two things that fake news really helps spread and curate and thrives on. And the first one is a black and white vision of the world with simple good and bad people in it. And the other one is conspiracy theories and how they undermine trust in each other and trust in our institutions. Um, and so for me, from that angle, um, I think fake news is, um, is, is one of the greatest friends to extremists and one of the biggest challenges we face. And, and I, you know, I, I advocate a lot in this country and, and elsewhere for much more radical action in, in education um, to teach digital citizenship on that basis. Panel, we've got about 10 minutes left and I've got to bring the audience in in a second. Is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't asked you? Is there anything you're bursting to say before we take it on to the audience? Yep, Cynthia. I just want one really quick um, response to that. And the problem is we want to, to be able to engage young people in learning those digital, critical digital media literacy skills. But how to do that? It's not proven to be possible in schools because teachers are already stretched to breaking point. Every time they turn around, someone's saying, we need to teach that in schools, we need to teach that in schools. There's not enough time. Um, all of the students I've spoken to who've been through the system here, when I ask them about any citizenship classes they've had in school, non-existent to extremely minimal. So, I mean, mm. we do need to find creative ways of, of 
actually doing critical digital media literacy. I mean, and yet that does seem to be the response of most yeah. politicians to say, what are we going to do about fake news? Let's have media literacy mm. in, in schools. Let's have media literacy as part of the notion. They've been saying it for decades and yep. doing almost nothing. Yeah. Then I suppose yep. that's where I, the media come in. It becomes our responsibility as well as, as people who are creating media for children to consume to help equip them with those skills. Mm. Yeah, I mean we, you know, I mean I couldn't agree more. It, you know, the, the, the government has been hugely inactive when it should have been very active, and um, um, you know the, the, that inaction is leaving leaving us vulnerable in, in really serious and dangerous ways. Um, but you know, so we combine lobbying for for, for, for action in this space with um, uh, an awareness that you know teachers are overpressed. Every single policy, um, you know, uh, kind of angle that the government ever wants to pull, education is the first stop. Um, and that's why we, we've, we've taken the youth centre approach. And we're looking for other ways we can do this as well. You know, um, it's quite difficult to get young people to give up um, six hours on their weekend to come and learn about digital citizenship, but it can be done. Mm -hmm. um, we do it by, you know, we have really great facilitators. We have YouTube stars who come and kind of, you know, give talks and stuff and to, to bring young people in. But there are more unconventional approaches you can take, and that's one of our reactions to it. Right, can we have the lights up? And I'll ask Jan Willem yeah. to come in. Yeah, please. Um, just Thank a short sure thing, which is that I strongly believe that um, the most challenging thing now is that we have to find out what the young people's parameters are in creating and sharing fake news. And so far, we're talking about our perspective, what we think about fake news, why we want them to learn what we think. We have to change that. That's the most difficult thing uh, that will take some time. Um, but there is When the you key. say parameters, what do you mean? Uh, what their criteria are, what, their, what moves them, what motivates them. Um, to act like they act, instead of saying, well, you have to act like this and then you're safe for the rest of your life. That is not the way it works with young people today. It's too top-down. What's yeah, going on at the moment absolutely. is too top-down. And we've we, moved from inaction to a moral panic as well. We really have to put the children in the center. Yeah, okay, so that involves research. Absolutely. And talking to children and asking them and uh, finding out. Working with them, for instance, it would working be great if, if great uh, professional journalists work with uh, vloggers together to find out, okay, this is what I'm doing, this is what you're doing, how can we, you know, bridge? That is interesting. Okay. Oh, audience, yeah, I can That's see two doing. or three hands. Yep, okay, please. Uh, the lady just here, and then the lady here. How many mic, we got another microphone as well? Yeah, please, here. Please, Hi. would you like to, if you feel like it, would you like to identify yourself? I think just speak, it'll be fine. No, can you hear me? Okay, let's try the other microphone. Switch them over. Just take the other microphone, please. There we go. Sorry about that. Okay, stand up and shout. Wait. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Don't shout. Yeah, yeah. Shout in the microphone. Uh, I'm Betsy Bozek. I'm an editor at Common Sense Media in the US, and I want to say thank you all for tackling this topic. Um, it is something we are obviously incredibly concerned about as a media literacy um, and critical skills organization, and I also sort of feel the need to apologize in general for my entire country. And our <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but I, you know, Cynthia, I took your point about, you know, prioritizing this in schools. That's a big deal. Um, we have a, we've had some success with a certified educator and certified school program where they come to us and get resources for free. And then that, you know, then the more they do, the more we give them, we'll send speakers to the school if they complete our training and implement the curriculum in classes. We've also gamified it by putting out free games called Digital Passport and Digital Compass. So that's sort of a break for the teachers because they can have the kids play a game, assuming they have devices in schools. Um, and then the kids are have fun because they're playing a game, but they're also learning skills as they go. So I think it's looking at sort of creative solutions from that perspective to help make it 
help make it easy to make it a priority. Um, and I just think I like this great idea of bringing in YouTube stars to get kids and teens um, involved. I think that's a wonderful idea. Um, and I just, I appreciate all the stuff you guys are thinking about and doing. And I don't really have a question, but just let's keep fighting it. <laughs> Thank you. The woman here, please. Yeah. Uh, uh, I said a lot with the safe children. Um, a couple of questions, really. One is kind of flipping it in terms of do you think young people these days are actually extremely critical of media when they're looking at mainstream media outlets? And to what extent are the big old players in media, have they already lost the trust of young people? And is that something that's, that the mainstream media will ever get back? Um, and the second question is it kind of related to that. Should we be expecting young people to trust our old school media of newspapers and television when the way, say, something happens in Parliament is reported by typical, where the Guardian reported the Daily Mail reported? How are young people supposed to decide what is legitimate mainstream media and whether or not newspapers are any more trustworthy than really get information elsewhere? Louis? I think, I think Louis put it very well. I think it was Louis who said it at the beginning. You know, we are we are programmed to be far more critical about um, content that we, that we disagree with and what, that we agree with, and that's the same for children as for adults. Um, about the mainstream media, I think what we shouldn't do, you know, um, from the BBC you can't get much more mainstream than, than us. Um, I think what we shouldn't do is say, trust us, you know, we, we, we're trustworthy, the others aren't, that won't be effective. I think, what do we, what's, the, what's the end game here? We want, do we want citizens who are able to critically judge a, ver a wide variety of opinions and sources and make up their own minds about it or do we want people who just go I don't know what to trust, nothing's really trustworthy, I'll just believe what I want to believe. And the danger is with echo chambers, with social media, we're going for the latter rather than the former. So what we should be doing as content makers, I think, is we should be saying to, to, to children and to adults, you know, we live in a pluralist society where you can believe what you want to believe, but you have to listen to other sides of the argument. That's, that's part of the deal in order to, in order to be able to, to have your opinions. Um, and that's what I think you know, we, we might be able to shape if we're lucky. I know the trust yeah. ratings for newspapers are through the floor. I don't mean yours yeah. in particular, but in general. Yeah, they are. But I think I agree absolutely with what Lewis has said. I think there's a kind of in people needing to understand, if they don't already, obviously, that newspapers tend to have a political bias and, and, and actually that there are facts and there are opinions and there are many different perspectives and it isn't binary. There are shades of grey. You know, the world isn't just good or bad. And, and so to, to understand whose opinion you're listening to or reading is a really important part of the process of filtering news for yourself, I think. Um, and I, yeah. in, in fact, one of the things I'm trying to do in some countries is to reconnect youth with the mainstream media, I realize. Um, because if you, if you consider that Nine Gags, for instance, is one of the main sources of information and news for kids, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's really not what they should see as a serious source. No. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, um, I just, um, apart from just agreeing, agreeing with, I, it's always annoying when a panel has too much disagreement, and I think we should really get some disagreement going, but I agree with the comments. I've tried to spark some disagreement, yeah. but yeah. I know, yeah. Um, I think that um, fake news is a symptom rather than a cause of some seriously deep social problems. Um, the, 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 the thing that concerns me most in this space, and it, you, know, you said, have young people, uh, have, has the mainstream media lost the trust of young people? I think the mainstream media has lost the trust of people, and, and it's, you know, and so have governments and political parties and politicians, and, and uh, that's been happening uh, across Europe and North America since about 1975. There's been a downward trajectory in trust in institutions in, in almost every facet of our lives, and, um, 
it's, uh, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of complex causes for that um, that we don't fully understand, but that's what really uh, worries me. Because ultimately, if you don't trust anything, then anything is, you know, anything is true, I guess. Well, some people say, of course, that's the intention of the alt-right, certainly in the United States, to destroy all trust in all institutions, etc. But that's a, that's a conversation for another day. Can, Cynthia? Can I just slightly disagree with that, please? Um, because actually, um, there, there is the example um, in the US, for example, of the New York Times actually getting more subscriptions and more traffic now to their website because they're, they're actually um, advertising themselves as a source that can be trusted and they've tried to prove how it is they can be trusted. And people are actually starting to go back to some of those legacy media. It, it, you know, in a world of, of you know, social new media news and fake news and all of that because they, they, as long as they can convince their readers that they're offering something different and something that actually is fact-checked and, and so on, um, it, it's starting to turn around. I mean, for years and years, you're quite right, there was that loss of trust around legacy media, but amongst certain legacy media it seems to be coming back and is, they are yeah, yeah. Is, is that what is that why they're, they're, they're going to the New York Times or is it because Donald Trump has set up the New York Times as, as their partly. enemy so if you're opposed to Donald Trump sure. you'll go to them okay yeah, yeah, I'm going to have to stop you there that's it we're out of time but first of all thank you very much indeed to the panel thank you all very much indeed